Well, welcome to Sunday School. Amen. It's good to see you all here. And uh, we'll be in Micah chapter 2 again as we continue our series through this prophecy. We'll begin again this week by reading verses 1 through 11. Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their beds. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man in his house, even a man in his heritage. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, behold, against this family do I devise an evil from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. You know what, we'll just stop there, that's as far as we're getting. <laughs> Amen. I always have these great plans of actually covering ground. Um, in verse 1, we have seen the premeditation of Israel's iniquity. They were devising iniquity upon their beds at night, and at first light they were implementing their plan. They were taking houses and fields by violence, by deceit. They were defrauding people, and that's what oppressed their means. And the main issue was they were taking people's heritage, it says there at the end of verse 2. It was their inheritance. It was the land in which God gave them by, by lot, and they were defrauding people out of that if you missed last week, you just got to listen to it because I don't want to get into all that again. But the challenge was for us to live a life of contentment, to be content with the things that we have and to not have to think we have to keep getting gain in this life. But God knows exactly what we need. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. The things of this earth will not last. The Bible says they will rust. The moth will eat at them. Things will corrupt. But if we would lay up treasures in heaven, that's precious stone that will not burn in the fire. And so set your affections on things above. The, the bottom line was all that we really need in this life ought to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our portion in the land of the living. And so that's all we need. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now in verse 3 for this week, we see God's response to the house of Israel's iniquity of oppressing the poor and taking a man's inheritance through deceit and violence. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, against this family do I devise an evil, from which ye shall not remove your necks, neither shall ye go haughtily, for this time is evil. God is devising an evil against them for their evil. As I think about what's taking place in this opening parts of this chapter, God sure is serious about the land. <laughs> and, and these are things that I look at, honestly, from a 21st century mindset, and I kind of think, why is God so angry over the fact that the lands are being messed with? I know we talked about last week that it was their inheritance, and I get that. But outside of Micah here, God still, we find, He takes seriously violations against the land. And I'll remind you that when the children of Judah were taken captive by the Babylonians, the length of their captivity was based upon the amount of Sabbath years the land didn't rest. Every seventh year was to be a year of rest for the land. And they weren't honoring God in that. And so God says, you're going into a 70-year captivity. And so we're, we're left to understand for 490 years, they were not honoring God's requirement for the land to have rest, and, and they violated God's land uh, requirements. And 
Job 41.11 says, Who hath prevented me, this is God speaking, who hath prevented me, or gone before me, that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 24.1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. When God placed Adam into the Garden of Eden, He did so that He might dress and keep it. God gave Adam dominion over the land to be a steward of what God had given creation, given mankind. And the earth is not ours to use for our own selfish gain. But it belongs to God and it's to be used as God has prescribed. In Exodus chapter 9, when God brought the hail mingled with fire upon uh, Egypt. Moses said in Exodus 9.29, As soon as I'm gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands unto the Lord, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hail, that thou mayest know how the earth is the Lord's. There's something about this land that maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me sometimes, but God wants the inhabitants of this earth, of creation, to know that it's His. This is His. I don't understand it all, but but God is angered when we don't treat the land in a manner in which it says it belongs to Him. It's serious enough with God that the house of Israel is going to go into captivity for defrauding people out of the land. And it's serious enough with God that, like I said earlier, Judah is going to go into captivity for not handling the land the way God had said, and I, I can't help but think how angered God must be at those who dare suggest that all of this was just a cosmic accident. Yeah. <laughs> now, it just happened. There was an explosion from a, from a period the size of the dot on your page, and, and all of this came out. How angered God must be at that. How angered God must be at all the mother earthers. How angered God must be at those who worship the creation instead of the Creator. And what struck me as I was just wondering about the the whole deal with the land is, you know, what might look at what, what might look like little commands in our eyes, man, they're big to God. You see, with God, a command is a command. Isn't that right? And we might look at some of this and we might try to justify what is okay and what is not okay. We're, we're good at deciding which commands we want to take serious and which ones we don't. I think we're all guilty of that in some degree. We trick ourselves into believing certain behaviors are okay. Christians in our stripe of churches like preaching against sin. Hey man, preacher! Tan their hide! Chew the shingles and spit out the nails! But you wait until there's preaching against their own pet sin that they've justified in their mind, and then all of a sudden it's labeled legalistic. That's a legalistic church. Well, First of all, you don't even know what legalism means. True legalism is the fact that we've added something to get you to heaven. And so it's just interesting how how people can be. How many young people within churches will agree preaching against adultery, all the while committing fornication? How many will agree with preaching against a certain type of music, But when it's preaching against their favorite kind of worldly music, well, now, no, we don't do that. 
How many will agree with preaching against drunkenness, but will disagree from abstaining from alcohol? And we can go on and on. Movies, books, the modesty issue. You guys with me? Come on now. You name the sin, and eventually we have something that we tend to justify, and we're guilty of doing that because in, in our minds we would look at something and say, well, it's not that big a deal. Well, I might look at the land and think, that's not that big a deal, but to God, he's getting serious about this here. We're talking captivity. And so what a sobering thought when it comes to our own pet sins that we like to keep tucked away. Now, in verse 3, we see that God devises an evil against them for their evil against their brethren. He calls them a family here. In Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, it says, Hear this, again, Amos is a contemporary of Micah. It says, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you. For all your iniquities, can two walk together except they be agreed? So under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, John made it clear that how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ reveals our relationship with Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, it says, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us love in word, uh, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Let Let me restate that last line. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. So do you have a love for brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? Do you love them? If you don't, John's clear, you don't know God. That's pretty serious. And that you're not a and, and if you don't love the brethren, then you're abiding in death. Now, we know it's never right to take advantage of somebody. But it really hurts when it's family who does it. Families are to love and to help one another. I'm bringing this up because the family language is used here in verse three. And I want to tell you, we're a family called Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. And we're to love each other. We're not to do evil one to another. And God here is upset because the evil that they're committing, they're committing against their brothers. And we're not to commit evil. Galatians 6.10 says, As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. The household of Israel was not functioning as a family ought to. They were taking advantage of their brethren, and so God devised an evil because of their evil. Under the law... God required an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a wound for a wound, a stripe for a stripe. And it was God's way of putting evil away from the land. In Leviticus 24, 19 and 20, it says, And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, 
so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And I got to thinking, as I make application to this particular point, somebody eventually is going to think of what Christ said in Matthew chapter 5. So that you can get yourself off the hook for what I'm about to make application for. Jesus said, you've heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if a man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And, what, and whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. What, what had happened when Jesus made that statement is in, is in Israel, they had corrupted the principle of an eye for an eye. They were taking matters into their own hands. They were, in their private life, they were deciding the judgment. We might use the term vigilante justice. They were taking the law into their own hands. And I don't want you to tune me out thinking that uh, this particular devising an evil for an evil is something that doesn't apply today because it does. It's called the law of the harvest. The principle still exists. And by the way, God still doesn't want us taking matters into our own hands. When, when the civil justice fails us due to corruption in the land, He still wants us to give space for Him to execute his wrath. The Bible says in Romans 12, 17 through 21, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hungry, feed him, or hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the Bible is clear. We're not to recompense evil for evil. That's what God is about to do here. He's going to recompense their evil with evil. It's his job to do that. It's not our job to do that. And we have to be careful about that. People today get caught up in the whole, you know, capital, what is it called? Capital punishment? Is that where we kill somebody? Is that right or is that wrong? According to the Bible, it's right. And a part of the problem is we have so much sin in the land because we're harboring those behind a wall saying that it's okay for you to continue to live and we're sitting there paying for them to live. That's what our taxes are going to partly. And yet the Bible is absolutely clear that when it comes to the eye for an eye principle, we don't take that into our private life. But these are matters that go before the judge. Now, we've got corrupt judges. That's the problem. We, we no longer just go get a rope in a tree. That was real cheap. We, we are to take care of things. When, when Paul said what he did in Romans about us not taking matters into our own hands, but allowing God to, to take care of some things, he was quoting Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. It says, To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge His people and repent Himself for His servants when He seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. You see, the Lord, we have to trust that the Lord will step into the place of judgment when His, when his servants, who ought to be the ones executing judgment, 
have ceased to do so. When they have lost their power to do so, God says, it belongs to me. Now, back to what Jesus was correcting, God wanted justice to be executed in the land. He did. He said, We've got to, you, you've got to keep evil out from among you. And he intended matters, this is how he wanted it to be done, though. They were doing it privately. But he intended matters to be brought to the gate, the place of judgment, where a matter could be discussed and a sentence could be passed. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 14 through 21, it says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark. That's what we're talking about here. They were taking away the boundaries and the borders that God had put in place. It says, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbor's landmark, which they of old time have set in thine inheritance, which thou shalt inherit in the land the Lord thy God giveth thee to possess it. So God says, Don't do it. But then he says, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin and any sin that he sinneth. But at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If a false witness shall rise up against any man and testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and the judges, which shall be in those days, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witnesses be a false, if the witness be a false witness, and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put an evil, put the evil away from among you. And those which shall remain shall hear and fear, and shall henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. I don't know why this is on my mind this morning. I didn't intend to say half the things I've said already. But uh, I remember when Alabama reinstituted the chain gang back in the 90s. And they had them out there on the side of the road in their black and white chained up. <clears throat> and they were sling blading the, the, the tall weeds and grass. And, and somebody went out there with a camera from the news and interviewed the guy. And, and he said, well, this isn't fair. I deserve to be educated. And I can't get my education when I'm out here. They did away with the, the chain gang. And so God here says there's evil in the land. And he wants that evil dealt with. And he's going to take matters into his own hands because according to Deuteronomy from where I just read, he said, if you've got an issue, you're to bring it before, the, before me, before the priests, before the judges. And they would, they would do that there at the gate and, and they would make this inquisition and they would pass their sentence. Of course, we live in a day where there's a lot of corruption and things like that. But God said, if you do that, then people will fear. There's no fear today. Kenny used to preach at the jail, and when I used to preach there, I remember we'd get repeat offenders in. And I remember one guy in particular, I finally asked him, what are you doing back? And this is what he said to me. He said, it's way easier here than it is out there. And here I get three, three square meals, and I get a cot, I get TV, I got it made. There's no fear. There's no fear. There ought to be fear when evil is committed. Is everybody with me? Now, I, I don't know what that looks like, okay? I, I don't know. But I, I know that there ought to be fear, but we're not putting evil away. And what's interesting about the passage I read is it's in regard to the removal of the landmarks, the boundaries. 
And when there was a matter that dealt with a man's inheritance, as we're studying here, they were to bring them to the gate. And that was true for all matters, but they were to bring these issues before the Lord. But within the house of Israel, the law of God had ceased to be of any effect. They had corrupted the law of God. The officials in the land were corrupt. And when they would bring stuff before them, there would not be justice. And as a result, God is now forced to step into the place of judgment. And He's going to execute His sentence against them as the supreme judge. And I want to tell you this, when there is no justice, when there is injustice, you can be sure that God's justice will eventually show up. Now, it won't be in our time necessarily. But sooner or later, God is going to step in and God's justice will come to pass. What I'm not really going to get into is there's overtones here in the opening part of this chapter of the great day when the Lord comes back and there's justice. There is no mercy in that day. And so God's justice will come to pass. And I mentioned earlier, don't think that anybody is exempt from this principle. It's still in effect. We reap what we sow. What you plant comes up. Galatians 6, 7 and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Here's what's interesting about what God has set in place. God has designed life to be self-correcting. There are built-in consequences for our actions. And it is, it is designed by God to correct us to get where we ought to be. The things that please God and the things that displease God, we know about them because of this self-correcting nature of life. We, we know that when we, when we displease God and there is a consequence, we know, okay, I should not do that. Isn't that right? And, and God has instituted life. to, to he's, he's built it that way. There are built-in consequences to our choices. You cannot plant wickedness and reap a blessing. You cannot. But on a good point, you cannot plant righteousness and reap corruption. Amen. What a blessing. Job 4.8 says, even as I... I, I can't, is this a lie? It's not Job speaking. Whoever the first, first dude was that just had to open their mouth that day. <laughs> so, even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Proverbs 1, 30 and 31 says, this is God speaking, they would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way. And be filled with their own devices. What did you expect when you didn't honor God? Did you think you'd reap God's best when you haven't honored Him? I mention this because someone will have an issue. And they'll want to know why their world is in such turmoil. And it's because of the law of the harvest. 
If you don't sow spiritual seeds, then you cannot expect a spiritual harvest. If you sow evil, you're going to reap evil. It's really that simple. Well, I don't like that. Well, that's what God does. Um, He says, adulterers and whoremongers, I will judge. And I have to tell people when I counsel with them, look, you're starting your relationship off wrong. You're under judgment. And so we cannot expect to reap these great blessings when we're not following God's word. It's self-correcting. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2 say, And it shall come to pass. Now, Deuteronomy 28, you really should read the whole chapter, but I'm just going to give you the opening parts of the blessings and the cursings from that chapter. Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 and 2. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. God says, if you want to be blessed, you can. You just got to honor me. And, but then in verse 15, it transitions to the curses. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, when I com- which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. We have a choice. We can have blessings or we can have curse. So the house of Israel here, they devised evil, and now God is going to devise an evil against them. And we see in verse 3 that it's an evil from which they will not be able to remove their necks. That doesn't sound too good. Jeremiah 34, 17 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord, ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty. Remember, that's what we mentioned last week, that part of the land deal was every 50th year would be a year of liberty, and they would return servants and they would return lands back to their original owners. But Jeremiah, in addressing the house of Judah, said, Ye have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty. Everyone to his brother, every man to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord. But he says, You have him proclaimed liberty, so I'm going, to proclaim, I'm going to proclaim a liberty for you to the sword, to the pestilence, and to the famine. And I will make you to be removed in all the kingdoms of the earth. You didn't proclaim liberty. I'm going to give liberty to the sword. To pestilence. And it's going to be bad. God's heart, we see there from Jeremiah, is about liberty. We see God's heart. God wanted things to be released. He wanted the lands to be returned. He wanted the servants to be returned as God had prescribed. And in that sense, we could say that what was happening here in Micah's day is they were holding people and possessions captive. They were possessing what they should have never been able to possess. And and they were holding that captive for themselves. And guess what? God here gives us more captivity language. You're going to hold people captive and you're going to hold their lands captive. I'm going to do the same thing to you. And now you're going to be taken into captivity. They were bringing the poor under such bondage that they would never be able to get out from under it. And God is about to do the same in return. The picture of, of you not being able to remove your neck is the picture of the yoke. Jeremiah twenty-seven twelve. I spake also to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Lamentations 1, 14 The yoke of my transgressions is bound by his hand. They are wreathed and come upon 
my neck. He hath made my strength to fall. The Lord hath delivered me into their hands for whom I am not able to rise up. And Lamentations 5.5 says, Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. The yoke is mentioned in 21 books of the Bible. And for those who may not know, the yoke was a harness used on animals to pull something, usually a plow or a cart. The one wearing the yoke is in the position of servitude, right? Deuteronomy 28, back to that, it says in verses 48 through 50, talking about the curses that would come upon them if they disobeyed God. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far from the end of the earth as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which shall not regard the person of the old nor show favor to the young." And the picture is clear. The the yoke of the enemy is always hard and it's always oppressive. Satan's yoke is the one that leaves people passed out in a back alley somewhere. That's Satan's yoke. Satan's yoke brings people under the bondage of liquor and leaves them in a drunken stupor. Satan's yoke divides families. And Satan's yoke brings brutal captivity. But aren't you glad Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and 30, Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest under your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Whether you realize it or not, you're yoked up to somebody today. There's only two masters out there, and you're with one of them. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. You're under somebody's yoke. It's either Satan or it's the Lord. You have a master today. You are either servants to sin or servants to righteousness. You're either captive to the devil or you are captive to Christ. Now you can choose the oppressor's yoke. Or you can choose the Lord's yoke. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you. He didn't say I'm forcing my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's a choice. You see, the enemy will enslave. That's how his yoke is. But Christ only accepts willing necks. Amen. We choose to be enslaved to Christ. Because his yoke is easy. We are servants of Christ. Which when you look that up, in in a lot of cases, it means to be a slave. Paul wrote that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. He was a slave of Christ. James wrote he was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wrote that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude wrote that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. And John on the Isle of Patmos called himself Christ's servant, all meaning a slave. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 21 through 23. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, also he that is called being free, 
is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. It's kind of a mystery. It really is. But we choose to be Christ of our own free will. And what the mystery is, is it's actually liberating to be enslaved to Christ. Because He's such a good master. It's a liberating thing to just give yourself to Christ, to be His captive. In Christ, we are freed from sin's captivity. From sin's hold on our life. Jesus leads captivity captive. Next, we see that the house of Israel would not go haughtily. What's interesting is this is the only place this Hebrew word is used for haughtily. And it means a prideful elation. Some kind of a joy that's taking place. Uh, They would not go on lifted up in their pride any longer. Jeremiah 13 verses 15 through 17 says, Hear ye and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God, because He caused darkness, and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains. And while ye look for light, He turned it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. But if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. I will weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eye shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. God doesn't want us to be captive to the enemy. He wants us free. I don't want to labor here because I think we all get it, but God hates pride. All forms of it. Pride from the wicked who think they are above God's judgment and pride from the righteous who think they are above others. Well, I'm not worried about it. God hasn't judged me yet. On the flip side, well, I can't fellowship with you because you're not up to my level spiritually. And you're beneath me because I'm such a wonderful Christian. Aren't you glad Jesus isn't that way? He was a friend of publicans and sinners. He sat down to eat with them. And if you don't think he still does that, he's fellowshipping with you. Yes. He still hangs out with you. Amen. Well, we see at the end of verse 3 that they would not be able to remove their necks. They would not go haughtily because the time is evil. In Amos chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe. And they turn aside the poor in the gate from the right. Now before I finish, that's what I've been talking about. The judgment was to go to the gate. But it had gotten so corrupt within the house of Israel that when matters would come to the, the leadership, to the, um, the justices, to the judges, that they would take the bribe and they would turn aside the poor. The poor were the ones being afflicted. The poor were the ones being taken advantage of. And Amos there says that they would turn aside the poor in the gate. In the place of judgment, they would not do the right thing, but they would turn them away. Therefore, the prudent shall keep silence in that time, talking about the time of captivity, for it is an evil time. There, there, would, be no, there, there would be no happiness. There would be no elation. It, it would be a time of misery and humility. There's no prideful air about them any longer. 
There's nothing great, and I'll finish with this thought. There is nothing great about being taken captive by the enemy. And people want to dabble with it. Be careful. Be careful. Because there could be captivity on the horizon if you don't get that right before God. And the only thing that can really help us is if God is merciful enough to forgive us when we repent. But let me rephrase that because he will forgive, but if God is merciful enough to change the consequence. So what are you sowing this morning? That's kind of been the emphasis here. What are you sowing this morning? What is about to come up in your field? Are you praying for crop failure? Lord, don't let that harvest come to pass. Listen, we reap what we sow. Let's get our hearts right with God. I don't want to see anybody going to captivity to the enemy. Let's pray.